You're listening to episode 107 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? A very warm welcome to our new 88 Cups of Tea listeners. As a quick overview of our podcast, I interview really inspiring and awesome storytellers in hopes that their personal experiences and advice will empower you and make you feel less alone in your storytelling journey. To all of you wonderful listeners who've been with us for a while, thank you so much for hanging out with us every week. I'm sending over a massive virtual hug to our listeners who recommended and shared our podcast with friends and took the time to leave us iTunes ratings and reviews. It means so much to me and it's such a big help in growing our community, so a very big thank you. If you're looking for a sense of family with a bunch of people who understand the highs and lows of being a writer, you need to join our private Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. I love this community of ours and I always have the best time with them. We check in almost every day to talk about our work in progress, our latest achievements, current reads, and so much more. We truly have the most encouraging and supportive members in our group, so you don't want to miss out on all the awesomeness. Come over and hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Before I introduce today's fabulous guest, I am so excited to share that I've been collaborating with the designer on rebranding our logo to best represent the podcast and the community that it's become. We've been working on it for over a month and did a lot of research and surveying. I was stuck choosing between the top two choices and had our awesome storytellers in our private Facebook group select the final logo. Be sure to keep an eye out for it on our website and our social media sites as you'll be seeing the new changes this week. You might notice that our main podcast photo for our podcast has also changed in whichever podcast player you're listening to, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, or anything else that you're using. I am so excited that it's finally ready to reveal. For a more detailed story about the meaning behind the logo, be sure to sign up for our newsletter over on our website at 88cupsoftea.com as I'll be sending that email out soon. In today's new episode, we have Holly Black, the author of best-selling contemporary fantasy books for kids and teens. Some of the popular books that many of you recognize her from are the Spiderwick Chronicles and the Modern Fairy Tale series. She's also hugely popular for The Coldest Girl in Cold Town and the Magisterium series. Holly's been a finalist for an Eisner Award and the recipient of the Andre Norton Award, the Mythopoeic Award, and a Newbery Honor. In the episode, we talk about the importance of understanding your character's oppositions to move your plot forward, how to make the most out of critique groups and get the best constructive feedback for your story, and the importance of being a part of a community that understands the ups and downs of the industry and ways you can find that community for yourself. And we also get into the characteristics you want to ideally find in your critique partner. Further into the episode, we discuss how to overcome self-doubt as a writer, and Holly shares a bunch of writing tools that help set writing goals. We dive into what it means to fast draft and how it pushes you past your critical eye to finish your first draft. 
For listeners especially focused on the craft of writing, you are going to freaking love today's episode because Holly also shares how she starts a story with a character and a feeling and how that navigates her to write the rest of the novel with an image in mind that evokes that specific feeling. She also unpacks why it's crucial to describe the fantastical elements at the same level of reality when writing contemporary fantasy and how to craft narrative voices that resonate with your intended audience by thinking about what you cared about during that age. This episode is so good. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, y'all are probably freaking out right now. We have none other than the Holly Black with us. Holly, how are you? I'm doing great. Hello. (laughs) Hi, I'm so excited to have you on. This is going to be an awesome chat. I love your personality already. Holly, we're talking on a weekend right now. So by the time this airs, it's going to be on a Thursday. How's your weekend? What are your plans like? I have a really good friend, Sarah Brennan here from Ireland and we might go apple picking with my kiddo. I live in a town with a bunch of writers and my friend Cassandra Clare is out of town right now and doesn't know Sarah's here so we're also going to surprise her tomorrow. Cute! (laughs) Oh my gosh so by the time this airs you would have already surprised her so I'm sure she's gonna be so freaking excited. That's so (laughs) cute! You live in Massachusetts right now right with your family? I'm from New York born and raised but I know that you grew up in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Do you miss home or are you happy in Massachusetts? I miss the ocean. When you move away from where you live, and I don't know how much this is true for you, but you do miss it. Obviously, I chose to move to Massachusetts, and I love it. I live in Amherst. It's a little town with a lot of coffee shops. There's a lot of colleges around here. It's great. There's tons of writers. I've never lived this close to as many people that I'm close to as I do right now. But there's always stuff that you miss about your homeland. Of course. Yeah, home is always going to be home. <laughs> Homeland. I love how My like, Jersey's a separate <laughs> land by itself. I miss New York too. I moved out to LA thinking, oh, screw New York. I don't need New York. I got this. I like sun, so I don't need the winter weather. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. now I kind of miss home. I'd be down to move back to New York. I miss that speedy lifestyle. It's very chill here. I'm actually in San Diego right now, so it's even more chill. <laughs> I get it. But at least you can visit more often than not. I know I mentioned this a little bit before, but I'm going to have to say it again. Our listeners are so happy to have you on. One of them, I'm literally reading her comment, Jessica Cooper. She's like, oh my God, I am going to die. Holly is my favorite author of all time. That was in all caps. So just thought it was a nice little welcome. So Holly, how did you first fall in love with writing? Like so many writers, I loved reading when I was a kid. I grew up in my great grandmother's house that my parents had taken over and it was a spooky looking house. My mom also told me that it was haunted. And so, Uh -uh, (laughs) so I grew up in this. Yeah. Yeah. It was really creepy. I mean, I was scared all the time as a child. (laughs) (laughs) So I grew up with this, I think, very firm belief in the supernatural. So fantasy seemed to make a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. My default state is believing in things. When I was a kid, that's how the world seemed. It seemed very permeable. So I read a lot of fantasy and I read a lot of folklore defensively to try and figure out how to protect myself against whatever was out there. I was a very nervous child. I would be too. When you read a lot, you wind up writing. When I used to go out touring with Tony Dieter Lizzie for the Spider books, he would always talk about as an artist how when you're a kid, everybody is an artist. When you're a kid, everybody's an artist and everybody's a writer. And he said that one day he looked around and he was like, well, wait, what happened to all of you? When you make up stories, it's not weird that you're making them up. It's actually strange that everyone else stops making them up. Tapping back to the supernatural, I think I would lose my shit. I'd be like, nope. 
out of here. I am running away from home. <laughs> Back to Tony. I absolutely agree. Everybody's born with that gateway of being more open to creativity and why a lot of kids do say that they do see some things that a lot of adults don't anymore because we are closed off to that. The fiction that you read growing up, was there any that really changed your life or your perspective about fiction that made you see writing in a different way? The Lloyd Alexander books, The Black Cauldron and Taran Wanderer, and those books really established me as a high fantasy reader. I really loved them. The Madeline Langle, Wrinkle in Time books. Oh, yeah. I remember being completely blown away by those. And not just them, but there's this parallel series called Meet the Austins. Mm -hmm. And it appears to be the realistic tale of a girl who gets along somewhat with her family and sometimes doesn't, is trying to figure out boys. And then at some point, the two stories crash together. And it was this moment where I realized how much bigger the world felt for me not realizing these stories could be running in parallel. That changed the way I thought about fiction and how you can construct fiction, where I thought I was reading these two different things. And then I was reading the same thing in the same world and really blew me away. After that, I joined this science fiction book club where if you did not turn in your form, they sent you a book. If anyone remembers these, I was extremely wifty and lazy and so I never remember to turn it and I always would get these books that I was like I don't even know what this is but I guess I'll read it it's here now I discovered Tanith Lee through that who is a British fantasy writer who writes these really just ornate beautiful stories and also Michael Moorcock with the Elric books I read a ton of classic science fiction and fantasy through my own laziness of not returning <laughs> things if I have to point to one book to which I owe my entire career it is Brian Fred and Alan Lee's illustrated book fairies which if you haven't seen is beautiful and Ooh. spooky brian froud if you are not familiar with his work did design for films like dark crystal and labyrinth and alan lee did design for lord of the rings Ooh. in addition to their other art projects and so you can imagine this just so beautiful this book but also so scary i think forever gave me that idea of what fairies are Ooh, okay. Okay, we're going to have all of those linked up in your show notes page so that listeners, if they have not checked them out yet, they can. Thank you. Those were a lot of books. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Because I feel like usually when we talk about specific books that have changed our perspective and really impacted our writing, it's usually one or two. But that was cool that you mentioned more than one or two. Earlier, you said that you read the book where it showed you how you can construct fiction like the stories were parallel. Was there a book of yours that you remember that might have drawn inspiration directly from that book? There's a bunch of authors. I'm sure I was going to talk about them at some point, but I'm going to talk about them now. Uh, Terry <laughs> Windling edited a series called The Border Town Series, which was a city that sat between fairy and the human world, which is one of the first fairies in the modern day pieces. And she had a bunch of writers that she worked with that I love all of their stuff. Emma Bull, Ellen Kushner, Charles DeLint. And they would leave little cameos of bits of each other's books oh. in each other's books. What? That really made me think of that same feeling of the world feeling bigger. Because if you see these things, you think, wait, are these worlds linked? Oh, I know that character. That character is from a totally different book series, but they just walked through this book series. And I have, with my friends, done that. I have seeded in pieces of other people's books so that if you know them or you know their work, you'll find occasionally these little pieces. 
And it's because when I read them, I had that feeling of expansiveness that I hope would make someone else feel that way. That's pretty damn genius. And it also really rewards the readers. Because I know that when I was in college, I was studying this media class. They were talking about how some shows, and I believe it was on the Warner Brothers or something, Mm. some shows would weave and tie in little bits and pieces from other shows that are also produced by Warner Brothers. But the TV shows would purposely do this. It was like an actual strategy where they would reward the very, very Mm -hmm. viewers and it would create a huge cult following. When the viewers are watching it, they're like, hell yeah, I totally know that character or that town from that other show. They feel so proud and they're even more excited to support. Well, I never really heard about that for books. And I like that because there's a nice sense of community with you and your writer friends too and supporting each other that way. I remember the moment when I realized writers knew each other and it really just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I was reading the year's best science fiction and fantasy and there were little bios after each story. And I realized that some of the writers had other writers in their bios. And I was like, what? I know. It's like, wait, there's this secret underground community. Y'all are friends. Y'all actually hang out. Doesn't it blow your mind as fans of those specific authors? You're like, Yes. Yes. I realized that's what I want. I want to know other writers. That's actually how I felt about Amy Tan. For me, being an Asian American, it really spoke to me. And then when I was obsessing over her first memoir, reading and then reading more about her and that she's part of a real life rock band for authors and Stephen King was in it too. I'm like, what? You guys hang out? Wait, how? Like, How does that work? How do you guys meet each other? But I know for me, it meant so much to me. I look up to Amy Tan and Stephen King to know that they've come together and actually rock it out on stage. (laughs) I want to go and rock it out with them. But yes, I absolutely understand that feeling. And I'm right there with you. And I love that you're doing that for yourself. Now you know everybody, though. (laughs) Okay, this is awesome. What was it like growing up in Jersey? Did you have fond memories? Did you have bittersweet memories? I know for me, growing up in Great Neck, Long Island, I was like, ugh, I don't even want to talk about that I'm from Long Island. But now I'm just like, all right, it's a part of who I am. Just embrace it. I grew up in, like I said, a kind of creepy house. My parents are a little bit hoarders. There were a lot of books. I mean, a lot of books. My dad would bring home books from a dumpster and be like, look, I found books. And I'd be like, awesome books. My mom's a painter. And so there was a lot of art growing up, making stuff, doing a lot of crafting. I spent a lot of time at the beach. No sunscreen back then, just, you know, my whole summer swimming in the ocean. I think a lot of my early work is really about what it was like to be in New Jersey and be where I was with the friends that I had. I hung out with a lot of hoodlums. I kind of an aspirational nerd. All I wanted was to play Dungeons and Dragons and to find somebody to play Dungeons and Dragons with. And so I would teach groups of hoodlums to play Dungeons and Dragons with me. I think a lot of my books are about the suburbia that I was living in, which felt really different from the kind of suburban landscape, which was in media, where you would see all these cookie cutter houses. Mm. And and that wasn't my experience of it at all. It was really worn and faded. The Jersey Shore was at one time a fancy place where people would go to the beaches and wealthy people would come to the beaches. But then as there's more people fly to go on vacations. Yeah. It fell into disrepair. And so you had all of these beautiful old buildings that are abandoned and boarded up. So you had this weird juxtaposition between strip malls and all of this weird faded glamour that created, I think, a lot of liminal spaces, which feel to me ripe for fantasy. A lot of my work was about that. And I remember specifically behind my high school, 
there was this graveyard on a hill. It's called Cemetery Hill, and that's where everyone would go sledding. What? You guys are so brave. I would not be near that cemetery. I'd be so scared. The cemetery was not the most frightening part. The most frightening part was that if you went down the hill, you went straight toward the highway. What? So if you theoretically you could fly right in. That was really the problem with Cemetery Hill. No one got hurt ever. I can't say that. I cannot I cannot tell you that. Yo, you guys are hardcore. It was the eighties. I remember they once closed the beach because a bunch of plastic bags washed up on shore. I live close to the racetrack, and it was the body of a jockey that had been cut up. And they were like, all right, well, we'll close the beach for a week. And it was back open. Everything was back to normal. That's how it was back then. Super casual. Soup's cool. Yeah, it was really casual. Anyway, there was this half-built mausoleum in this cemetery, and it was this amazing space. So they never finished it. And on top... It was grown over with dirt, and there were all of these big trees growing from the top level. There was no roof. It was beautiful, and it's so weird. We used to break in there and walk around, and it was almost like a castle. This really weird organic castle. I love that you just said organic castle. I mean, it had all these trees and plants. It was really weirdly beautiful. Also covered the detritus of children who broke in there. But, you know, like, to me, what I felt was really suburban and not always represented in depictions of suburbia. I'll never forget <laughs> Organic Castle. That sounds amazing. I feel like I would have loved to have had access to something like that growing up. And also, you're really freaking good at explaining images and describing things. They're so vivid. I felt like I was walking yeah. through it with you as you were explaining it. You know, this is my problem with plotting, though, is that all I do is think of an image. And then I'm like, I wonder what story might go with this image. I don't really know. I just have an idea for an image. <laughs> so uh, obviously, I had a do some research. I don't want to sound stalkerish or creepy. I have completely marathoned 88 cups of tea. I have a lot of questions for you. I want to know how Mullen's <laughs> restaurant's going. Oh I want God, to know what's so going sweet. on with your book. You only mention it sometimes, oh, but wait, I want girl? to know. I have a lot what of questions. What is going on? You are so sweet. <laughs> I'm ready. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I'm so touched. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that over a hundred episodes. So thank you. I'm blown away and my face is all squished up. I wish you could see it. No, I'm really curious. In each episode, a Occasionally, we'll get a hint, but I know that you're working on something in the background. Oh, God, I just feel like such an ass because I know that with this podcast, it was really created to inspire myself along the same time, inspire everyone else who had the same questions and really help them along their storytelling journey. And then for me, sometimes I feel in a way like a hypocrite. I'm so excited about our community's work and what they've been working on. And then I've put my own in the back burner and I've mm. put 88 Cups as number one because now I've created it and it's become a job, an actual thing to right. put also a roof over my head. I talk to authors who talk about having normal jobs as well. I don't know how Jeff Sentner is also a prosecutor in the daytime. How the hell do you do stuff like that? Oh my, my whole life was all creative stuff. That's mm -hmm. it. My grandpa's an artist, like your mom's an artist. Definitely got a lot of that from him. I went from acting and then fell out of love with acting, felt a little bit empty from that because I felt like there was no agency in it when you're not really telling your own story. Even if you want to help tell other stories as an actor, you don't always have the opportunity and it's very difficult. I ended up weaving my way back to writing. I've been so consumed with 88 Cups of Tea and wanting to be there for everyone in this community in supporting their work and boosting their work that I have become, I think, okay with putting my own writing work in the back. 
I think it's probably something that a lot of people who listen to this think about too. And I think you were working on your first book, right? Uh, Yeah, like since college. It took me five or six years to write my first book. The whole experience, it was very different than any book that I ever wrote after that. When you're writing a first book, you're trying to teach yourself everything. You're trying to teach yourself what dialogue is, what plot is, what pacing is. If you don't have an intuitive sense of that, and I did not have an intuitive sense of that, I think it is extremely frustrating, especially if you're somebody who goes back a lot, who revises a lot. And then there's all of the emotional stuff about it. What does it mean? The longer you work on it, it has more weight. And I think a lot of people struggle with that and probably also are saying, well, am I going to do this? At what point? I remember when I was, I think, 26. You know, when people talk about like a midlife crisis. Yes, a quarter life. Yeah. I'm going to be 46 now. I'm turning any age but 26. (laughs) 26 is the age. It hit me really hard. And I thought, I'm never going to finish this book. All my friends are going on to do the stuff they want to do. And I'm never going to be done. And I am not really a person who get who shows up on my friend's doorstep as I did crying, being Oh, my God, I will never be done. And because at some point, it wasn't even that I was afraid that no one would like the book. I literally just became afraid I would never finish it. Yes, I feel you. Thank you for that. It's so strange that you also asked me this right now, the timing. Two nights ago, I had a friend tag me from the time where we were filming a movie for a Disney feature film. It just brought me back to that time where I temporarily stepped out from acting to do this. And I had originally a goal as I was starting 88 Cups of Tea to write my book and actually complete it. And I'm learning by talking to guests like you, where it's just sometimes like, all right, you can't always guarantee when you can publish or when you can't even be published. Mm-hmm. What you have in, in your own control is completing your own manuscript and going through those hurdles and really pushing through. Cause like you really just have to do the work. That's what I'm learning the most where there's no freaking excuse. There's no magic pill. You got to do the work, sit your ass down and do the work. And if there's some emotional block, you're going to have to learn to push through it. And I think that's a journey of being a writer is you learn how to be a human being and how to grow and expand as a person. It really hit me hard when I saw my co-star friend who tagged me seeing those other friends who were tagged in the photo who are so sweet. When we all first Mm -hmm. started in that film, they were just newbie. Me and one other actor, we had some things under our belt. And the newbies, they were so sweet and so excited about everything I was too. Just to see Mm -hmm. and check up on them. I'm like, they're like in every TV show, every movie, everything. And I'm so (laughs) proud of them. It was more of a self-reflection of myself. You know how you're talking about how your writing friends are doing so well. And I'm just, okay, I made this choice for a reason. I've never had an understanding of what community is until 88 Cups of Tea came along. I never had that. I never knew what that was like. In the world of acting, it's hard to find a community. I'll find a handful of best friends. A lot of times you wonder who's authentic, who's not, who's genuine, who's not. And it was hard for me to find people that I could really click with and trust like family or be natural where it's not so forced. But Mm -hmm. it feels so natural with 88 Cups of Tea. In my head, I'm like, you need to stop comparing and stop thinking about what would have happened if you stayed with acting and where I could have been in the acting world right now because I chose something else and I chose to go more inwardly and to expand myself as a human, as a person, to find things that have more meaning and not to rely on screen time or booking a job or being on the red carpet to give me fulfillment. That was dangerous. And I noticed it was getting me a little cray cray. So I was just like, "Mm, I'm not feeling this version of myself. That's not how I was raised. 
I don't like that. I'm having a lot of conflict here. Touching it back with real genuine connections with people, people to people, and being supportive and being very community driven. Then when I reminded myself that, then I was like, okay, you're okay. I see it as an entrepreneurial thing, the podcasting. This takes time to grow. It's just like writing. It takes time. Like book is not going to be done in like a day. It's going to take time, you know, whether it means maybe sometimes you need two or three years for the book to really come to fruition because you still haven't Absolutely. lived some kind of life. Sometimes I feel like a cop out when people do ask me like, how's your writing? I'm like, <gasps> oh shit. <laughs> my heart literally was just like, oh my God. But then I'm like, you know what? It is this very personal story. It's similar to Amy Tan's style, where it's very much based off of my parents' generation and what they've gone through and my own reaction to it and observing what's been happening. But now I seek some pushback from my grandpa because the story is about his wife that left mm-hmm. the family, my grandma that I never got to meet because she left to a Buddhist temple. She was abused from in-laws. And I did a podcast episode on him. And I didn't know until recently that he was upset about it. So then I was a bit hurt. And that really hurt me creatively. So now I feel like I almost have a block where I'm just like so scared to touch that story. So it's a lot of that. And I realized, damn, this really teaches us like being a writer is so much more than just putting words on a paper. It really teaches you a lot as a person and how to deal, whether it's your relationships and your dynamic with other people, with your parents or your family members, and you learn how much to put in, how much not to put in, how much of it do you want to be truthful and honor the truth of the story? Or do you feel like a sellout for not speaking the truth and warping it so that those specific family members don't feel bad about themselves? It's a lot of struggle. That's a really difficult situation to be in. I just threw all that on you. I was like, maybe you could try and write, you know, a certain set number of words per day. But no, this is like, a. I mean, that's a much more difficult situation in which I assume you're going to have to have a pretty serious conversation. Yeah, I'm going to have a serious conversation with my grandpa soon. And also there's some people still on that side with the in-laws who I'm pretty sure a few of them have heard this podcast who are not going to be thrilled. I've talked about it and I'm mentioning it again, but again, I'm like, listen, that's my truth. Mm -hmm. And it really hurt a lot of my family members, my mom, my aunts, my grandpa, it hurt him really badly too. So I'm not going to have to hide it just because you're not cool with your name being tainted. That's not my job to cover up for them. I just word vomited and dumped that all on you. No, I I really wanted to know. First of all, I cannot help myself but ask about people's books. I love to talk about other people's books. One time at SCBWI conference, I was having lunch and I heard some poor, innocent critique group sitting next to me. And I literally swiveled in my chair and was like, (laughs) hello, I couldn't help overhearing. And I see that you have a plot problem and I have some thoughts. (laughs) I cannot stop myself. It's a compulsion. And so the idea that in the background of all of these podcasts, you were working on a book that I didn't know anything about (laughs) and didn't know how it was going was actually driving around the bend. (laughs) I'm really honestly very touched and blown away that you even took the time to ask. It doesn't matter how curious you are normally. That was really nice of you to even take the time to ask that. You know, something that I kept in for a while, I didn't know how to be that honest with the community. And you helped me with that. So thank you. 
Well, I yeah. hope you let us know how it keeps going. Well, they, because yeah, thank you. My eyes are watery right now. Thank you so much. That really meant a lot. So, <laughs> okay, Holly, sorry. I am curious when you did mention that you swiveled into that critique part. <laughs> when you mentioned like the being like, hello, I heard you got some plot problems. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me, but might I lend you some advice? <laughs> you know, it's funny. There were some listeners writing in in our private Facebook group. We talk to each other on the daily, but then every week we've got posts to see how their work in progress is going and a lot of them also have issues with plot and they feel stuck like they're feeling so good in the beginning and then kaboom they're stuck and then for months and it stops them to the point where they're not even really that excited to jump back because there is no solution that they can find and I also feel stuck in not knowing what to tell them because I am in no way an experienced published writer hell no and I'm also absolutely not a teacher at all. I'm just there as like a cheerleader. But what can I say to actually get them from feeling that stuckness with plot to get them excited again and face their own fears and whatever is that creative block? Might you lend some of that advice you gave to the critique group to us, please? Absolutely. I have a lot of thoughts about this because this was absolutely me. I am completely not intuitive about plot. When I was in high school, I wrote a lot of poetry. And when I first started writing longer fiction, I guess I had written longer fiction before that. I wrote a truly terrible novel in eighth grade. And then I put that aside and I wrote a lot of poetry. But when I came back to longer fiction, I really wanted to write about the truth of the moment. And plot felt really artificial. And so the first drafts of Ty, there were just a bunch of elves sitting around drinking coffee, experiencing ennui. At some point, I actually thought to myself, I've got an original idea. What if they are invited to a quest and they just don't go on it? Has anyone ever done that before? No. There's a reason no one's ever done that before, because it's really boring. (laughs) That's how far off the mark was when I was first trying to But the thing I've realized is that often what we come up with when we come up with an idea is we come up with the premise. That's the thing that takes us often through about the first fourth of a book. We see people who get stuck at about 25 to 33% through a book, right? Yes. Because that's the part of the idea you get. Occasionally people know how it ends. Often we don't actually have the ideas for what comes after that. And there's almost like a gear shift too in there because that first part is introducing it's the setup but then something has to happen the character has to buy into whatever the story is going to be about they have to really want something and the force of their desire is part of what pulls us through the rest of the book and if they don't want anything or we haven't quite figured out what is the opposition to that want, then we're in a tricky place. And I think one of the things you can do is think about if you have a villain or if you have an opposing force, what is the opposing force doing playing through from that perspective? And if you don't have an opposing force, what are the complications of what they want? A lot of times when we're writing, we're down in it with the character. And so we don't always see ahead I feel like a lot of my first drafts are characters walking around being like, whoa, I didn't expect that to happen because I'm constructing the plot. It's like making a maze. So much of my first draft is me making that maze. And so much of my second draft is actually running the rat through the maze and having the character fight the plot. The other thing has helped me enormously is talking out loud with my friends about story because it engages a different part of the brain and because it allows us to get that distance. We're not down in the maze with the rat. We actually can 
hopefully with the help of our friends, see a little bit further, see a little bit more the shape of the story. And I think sometimes people are worried that it won't be your story if you talk about it with other people. Yes, I was actually wondering that naturally we all have egos, right? But then also egos is wondering if I discuss too much, do I even feel ownership over the story? And maybe there's some people I can see where for me, as an example, I'd feel guilty even going forth with that how would you push past that well all right when you are actually in the situation right and you've gathered together your people and they're going to give you ideas this is how it's going to go they're going to be like what if this happens (laughs) and you're going to be like no and they're going to be well what if that happens and you're going to be like no that's not it either and then they're going to be like well wait what about this and you're like actually that could work if i did this this and this because the story is in your head it's your story the things that they're saying it's going to draw it out of you. And and so much of what they say isn't going to be right. You have to think of the story as being out there and they're helping you discover it. It's not like they're making up the story for you. They're giving you some ideas that help you get to the story that already is there. And that's how you, a person who actually has no idea what's going to happen next, can still know it's not that. You know what I mean? Yes, yes, yes. I love that so much. There's a lot of people that feel the same as I do where I have a lot of guilt complex and I always am, oh, I got to give credit where credit is due. It's to the point where I've had mastermind sessions with friends. I like to call them masterminds because it sounds really cool, but it's really just chit-chatting. I know, right? (laughs) It's just honestly chit-chatting over coffee or tea. Well, not coffee for me, but definitely tea. And people are like, okay, this, this, this or that. And I'm like, oh, that is awesome. And then I'll go home like, oh, crap. But I feel guilty now. I used to run a blog with one of my best friends. And I'm like, oh, I feel weird that it wasn't me or my best friend who came up with that topic, that it was one of our friends who suggested it to you. So then I'll make sure I'm like, shout out to da da da. Thank you for this idea. It gets to the point where it's chill the hell down, girl. This is all a community effort. And they're there to support you. So I love what you said. And it really resonated with me. And you would want to do that for somebody else. You would want to talk through their story. It's not you don't give back because then you wind up doing it for them. If someone did that to me, they were just trying to talk out loud and I'm guiding them. And they're like, oh, I can't do it because you came up with it. I'd be like, dude, shut up. Stop being stupid. Write the freaking thing. You'd be like, we already spent hours in the coffee (laughs) shop. Now you better use it. (laughs) I know. Don't waste my time. Just go. That's a really good point. Holly, you are so badass. And I love how you're just like, this is how it's going to go when you talk out loud. (laughs) I've done it a million times. I'll tell you right now. You're going to say no, 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 then yes. Have you done writing retreats or anything like that? And if so, have you found it helpful? I've done informal writing retreats. My friend Tasi Claire and I started going. We went to San Miguel de Ande almost every year now for ugh, many, many years now for about a month, mm-hmm. a year. And we started doing it because we both had been completely overwhelmed with deadlines. We had heard of people who went away and got a lot done and we didn't actually understand why they got more done away. We were willing to try it. Mm -hmm. And it really is incredible to take time away from your life and write because you wake up with the story in your head Mm -hmm. and you go to sleep with the story in your head. And if you're there with your friends, it's true that whenever you're stuck, here's my problem. I'm stuck on this weird thing. I need a weapon. You need a weapon that can do something cool, but not too cool. What do you think it could be? <laughs> so it is really great. That's almost like an intense summer camp or boot camp where yeah. solely focus on that. I'm always loving to ask about retreats because I love that kind of vibe. I've gone to Burning Man and this thing called Camp Grounded. I really was able to connect with a lot of my creative side, even more so than usual, because of those intense days where you're just 
surrounded by creativity and very, very creative people, a lot of times more creative than you. That would be such an amazing thing for writers. So I love it when I hear you actually found something like that. That's great to hear that you also were asking for advice about what kind of cool weapon that you can use, but not too cool. You should do an 88 Cups of Tea retreat. It would be awesome. That's something I've been discussing with Moon because she's really good with operations for the food Mm -hmm. industry. We should definitely do this. I literally wrote that down in my notebook. It's almost past two years now. So it was a year and a half before I even started 88 Cups where I wanted to do the podcast. I would say about three and a half years ago, I wrote it down underneath the big capitalized words, 88 cups of teas, ideas and branches of what I want the podcast to grow into to really help the community. I would love to bring some type of Burning Man, that kind of feel and really make it community driven, very supportive and almost makes you feel you went to I don't want to say spiritual retreat, but you come back. No, I know what you mean. Yeah. I'm not religious, but it's just very connected, very fulfilled and your cup was filled. And you come back feeling there's hope in the world again, especially if you've been feeling really down about creative blocks. So I would love that. Are you kidding? I would freaking die if that ever happened. I'm so happy. (laughs) When you talk about you and your friend or bestie, because it almost sounds like a bestie in the writing world. (laughs) I'm really lucky to... I have friends that live close by. I'm really lucky to have Cassie who lives really close by. My friend Kelly Link lives really close by. And we get to write almost every day together. (gasps) We get to go to a coffee shop. We work on our own stuff. My first critique partner, Steve Berman, just moved up here. What? You have everyone around you. We just meet every day. We go pick a place, meet up, bring our computers. And I mean, writing is lonely. You know, you're in your own head. You're making this thing and it's not always fun. It's not fun the way the way the talking is very fun. Actually, writing is often, you know, a lot less fun. And so having people there makes a huge difference. And, you know, watching them work, you are pushed to also work. I can't imagine moving out from New York to LA just for acting on my own because I moved out with my best friend, Mm -hmm. Mickey. He's an actor as well. And he's also under the same management by coincidence. So we moved out together and... I never understood why so many people that we met in the industry who moved out by themselves, they were so depressed, really depressed because the idea of getting rejected every single day, they're going out for auditions and stuff, or they'll book once a year or once every two years and that makes up for everything. I never realized how hard it could have been until I met Moonlin because then she told me what it was like to move to LA to help start a restaurant. And it was so hard for her. She's very driven by friends. Friends are her family. In LA, it was so difficult for her to find genuine friends. Like it's so easy in San Diego. It was so easy in San Jose, up near San Francisco for Mm -hmm. her. But in LA, it was so difficult. And it wasn't until she told me that and really going through it with her and seeing how it really emotionally impacted her to the point where I felt so sad. I know I'm your girlfriend, but at the same time, I want to be your friend too because I don't want you to be sad. But I know I can't play that role because I am the relationship role. It's just hard to see your significant other going through that. You talking about your community with you, like going every day to the coffee shop, it fills me with so much happiness. It's not going to be as bad because you have your friends around you. There's more to it than just putting certain amount of words. And the ups and downs of the industry too, which are to realize that everybody has a rough time. Everybody's struggling and they've got stuff and they're trying to figure out stuff like have, you know. Having a community to help you through that is amazing. Indeed. Otherwise, you don't always know when you're going through something. It feels like it's only you. Everyone's career has ups and downs. Okay, I don't want to be creepy, but how were you able to 
meet your core group of writer friends? Would you suggest going out to writing conferences or reaching out to each other on social media? I hope I don't sound mean when I say this, but you know how they also say in your writing group or critique partner or whoever, you want to make sure you're kind of the same level. It's not one is way more experienced where your writing style is a little bit, I guess you could say advanced and the other one's sort of a beginner and it's sucks to say, but reality is I'm hearing that some people advise like you've got to find around the same experience. Well, I think what you want is you want to be able to come up together. Yes. yes, Right. You want to be at the same point because you want to be going through the same stuff. So you're working through it together. When you're looking for agents, you're looking through them together. You know, with you and your friend, you want to be at the same point. So you're having the same experiences. Yes. And so you do get to have that experience of being of sharing similar stuff. It's tough when one person is sharing really different stuff, but it can work. I think there's a bunch of things that you want to find at a critique partner. And the first and most obvious thing, but sometimes the thing that gets in people's way is you really need to like each other's stuff. You need to really like each other because you need to get what the other person is going for. A lot of times that means you don't have to write the same stuff, but you have to really appreciate similar stuff. You want somebody who's willing to put in the same amount of time, like who's as serious as you are. Mm, Yes, I agree with that 100%. Yeah. If you have that connection, then you'll be able to work on it from there. I met people through random different ways over the course of my writing. I met people at conferences. I met Cassie because I read a funny thing she wrote on the internet and I wrote to her and because I was alone in my house I was working on Spiderwick I had sold my first book and I was working on the Spider Chronicles my husband and my critique partner both went to grad school at the same time so I was in the basement of my house on the internet freaking out about my book coming out and I wrote to her to tell her that something that she had written was funny and she said I read your book And I was like, that seems impossible because my book's not out. But she had an advanced reading copy of it that she'd gotten from a friend. So she said she would come to my first signing, which was in New York. It was a Books of Wonder. And I was signing with Tamora Pierce, which was amazing. And Tamora Pierce is the most gracious and kind person. So Cassie came and then we went out and got hot chocolate because I didn't know you weren't supposed to just (laughs) meet up with people and go off with them. (laughs) (laughs) And she told me about the book she was working on. And that's how we got to be friends. And I met Kelly at a world fantasy convention. I was chatting with her and I had a copy of my book and I gave it to her and she gave me a copy of her book, which was a short story collection, uh, Stranger Things Happen. And I read it on the plane ride home and realized that she was a genius and then tried to figure out how I could get my book back from her. But it was too late. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm sure she loved your book. She was very kind about it. But still, when I first started out, I didn't know anyone who was in YA. The only person I knew in publishing was, in fact, uh, Tony, who I did Spiderwick with, who was at the time I had known him from gaming. He used to do art for Dungeons and Dragons. And I had edited a gaming magazine, like a little startup gaming magazine. I had met him through that. And he had moved to picture books. He was my friend who was in publishing, but I didn't know anyone in YA or anyone in adult publishing. And so when my first book came out, I went and actually went and befriended people. And I am incredibly shy and incredibly nervous about people. I totally get it. Folks out there who are thinking about how in the world will I do this? But I went up to people whose work I really loved and I told them I loved it. And I gave people my book and I became friends with people. You're really brave. It was really, really hard. And I think it was just that 
I did so want to be part of the community. I wanted it so much. And I think that was the only thing that would have ever made me do it. This all happened after or during your Spiderwick Chronicle. It sounds like you didn't really have a community or you didn't reach out just yet before you had books, right? Was it because you were more scared or you didn't realize it was something that you could do until you were working on Spiderwick? Well, it wasn't until my first book is Tithe and it wasn't until that book was coming out. I went to a world con by myself in Pennsylvania and in Philly and walked around and tried to meet people. And I went to a world fantasy by myself. I had known a few people before that. I knew Tony, but I didn't know anyone who was in like adult or YA publishing until my first book was coming out. I had no idea how to meet them. I didn't know anything. Jeez, I have to really commend you because when I went to the most previous book con, I was overwhelmed as hell and I got anxiety. Mm -hmm. I totally crunched up into a ball. I was like, oh my God, I was nervous. I don't know why. I was going in as 88 cups of tea, but I think when I was there, I started thinking as a writer and I think I started to feel maybe that whole guilt thing that I wasn't working on my own writing and maybe almost an imposter. I don't deserve to be here because everybody else here, a lot of people that I've seen, even I got to meet some of the listeners, which is awesome, but they're done with their manuscripts, which is awesome. But then for me, I'm like, this is so cool to be here. But at the same time, I kind of feel like a fraud. I'll never forget that feeling. I don't really know who I am or what I am or how I fit into the world. I felt like an imposter for many years after my book was done and out and I had a bunch of other books. It's not like I felt totally dissimilar. My husband's a painter and he's a fantasy painter. So we used to go to Gen Con, which is a big gaming convention. He would have his art and go around and I would help out. And I remember someone asking me, what did I do? And I was like, nothing. I don't do anything. I just felt the book wasn't done. Would it ever be done? I don't know. It's just such a weird feeling. And it felt the step between where I was then and being published felt so overwhelming. It felt like such a chasm. And it was weird because when I did go over it, when you're on the other side, you think, great, now I'm going to feel differently, but you don't. Mm. You're still the same person with all the same doubts. But before that, you just expect that it will be, that that you will be different on the other side. When did you start realizing it started changing? When I finished my first book, I wasn't really sure what it was. I thought it was an adult fantasy novel. It's about a girl who discovers she's a fairy changeling. So I thought, you know, she's got to be young because if you're 40 and you figure out you're a fairy changeling, everyone's going to be like, well, really, what took you so long? (laughs) She needed to be a teenager. But I had grown up reading lots of adult books about teenagers. And then I had a friend who was a librarian and who said, I think this is a young adult book. And she handed me Garth Nix and Tammy Pierce. And I went off and read them and was like, wow, I love these books. Why it had, was very different from when I was a kid. And I wound up talking to Tony's editor, who I knew a little bit, who was primarily a picture book editor, who agreed to take a look at it and tell me if it was a YA book. So he wound up actually acquiring the book in this sort of sideways thing that happened that I was extremely fortunate to have happened, but also meant that I had, you know, all of these set steps that I was going to do, I was going to go query agents, and I was going to, you know, do all this stuff. And then when he was like, I we want to acquire the book, I was like, great, give me the contract, I'll sign it. I don't need an agent. I don't want to disturb you. Never do what I did. Do not do this. Go get an agent. I was like, whatever you like. You want to publish my book? Great. I will um, sign my soul away. Anything. Absolutely. I had no question. No question. But it also meant I had no advice. I had no agent guide me through the process. I was just stumbling along for a while. When did I feel differently? I think it was probably a pretty slow 
process of feeling differently. Probably after I felt I had really close friends because I thought if they belong, then I belong with them. Yeah, I totally get that feeling when I had that core of really amazing girlfriends out in LA. It just didn't matter anymore. Do I feel the right to claim myself as an actor right now? After I had my friends, I'm just like, yeah, I act. I get you on that. I get you. And I, and it didn't even hit me till you said that, that it wasn't till my friends came along too. That's when I was more confident. Well, it's funny because I started out with a friend too, because with Spederick, Tony and I were actually on the road, but I always thought of him when I had met him, he was successful. And so it was never the same thing as later when I met people who had kind of come up with me. It was just different. It was definitely great to be able to go out my first tour. I wasn't alone. And he yes. knew what he was doing and is good in front of people. Whereas I was just, ah, my <laughs> voice shook. I was so scared. I was so scared of people oh, in the beginning. No. It's like, uh, nice to meet you too. Yeah. <laughs> Moonland gives me crap for that. Even now, just like if someone sees me and they're like, oh my God, really loved you in this. I'm like, uh, I just like freak out because I forget <laughs> that I was acting before because it's been a long time. And I'm just like, uh, I gotta go. Or they're like, uh, were you in that show? I'm like, nope, nope. People say I look like, nope, nope, not me. And I'll literally run out of Trader Joe's. Moon's like, why are you so awkward? Just say thank you. <laughs> Thank you for your support. That's all you got to say. Why are you tensing up? I feel like I have to say something perfect or something. No, I know exactly what you mean. It's really, you know, and it's, it's funny because people always feel weird about saying nice things. Yes. People, people say, I'm sure you hear this all the time. I like your book. And I think I love hearing that you shouldn't feel bad. But then I also am like, now I must say the right thing back because the gift you've given me by telling me that is so big. Yep. That I don't know how to return it. Exactly. How do I return that favor in that same amount of magnitude? Right. And I hate debt. I hate being kind of social anxiety debt. I never saw it that way till you said this. I'm going to borrow that from now on. I wrote these books called the Curse Workers books. And they're about cons and heists. They're sort of these magical mobster books. To write them, I had to learn about cons. The reason I thought of the debt thing is because if you go to somebody and you give them something, they did a study where they gave people a soda and then later asked them for money for a charity. And the people who had taken the soda gave more. Because they felt like they had to repay it. So like one of the ways you can suck people into cons is by first giving them something. That's, I think, what made me associate it because I realized how much I was so vulnerable to that, how conscious I was of debt. Learning about cons was really interesting because they so easily operate on people who have a lot of very specific ideas about like how they ought to be rather than this seems sketch let me get out of here it's really interesting how eager we are to shed social debt my number one way to befriend somebody is not to in fact do something for them but to let them do something for you oh mm. shit that's do you want <laughs> sinister right oh my god yeah i'm like <laughs> wait I'm like Holly because they because we all we like the feeling of actually being able to do that. We actually hate the feeling of someone doing a favor for us a lot of the time. I'm just gonna <laughs> send you some stuff, and then that's how this is gonna work. Okay, <laughs> expect something in the mail from me. No, see, it's the opposite. You have to let me send you stuff. <laughs> Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, we'll, we'll send each other things, okay? There we go. That'll do it. <laughs> Carefully measuring in specific increments. 
so funny. That's genius. Did you study psychology at all? No, this is really all research I did for this book. I was watching, what, okay, this sounds so stalkerish now, you know, talking about stalkerish earlier, but I watched one of your videos on YouTube where you're being interviewed and about how the coldest, I'm like, I have the book with me right now, The Coldest Girl in Cold Town came about was, well, inspired by a reality show. Okay, when you said it ended up branching out into the Flavor Love Show. Is that Flavor Flav? Yes, yes. Flavor Flav. So- <laughs> oh my God. Okay, no, but that wasn't the show, but it was the Megan Wants a Millionaire was the original one, right? So I watch a lot of reality television. I find the lack of narrative soothing is my excuse anyway. You know, one thing I talked about when I talked about Cold Town is that a lot of times we think we are doing things that have nothing to do with our writing until someday it does. And so I really thought that my watching of reality television would never have anything to do with my writing. When I was creating the world for Cold Town, I was thinking about one of the really strange things about reality television, which is when real reality intrudes on constructed reality. I was thinking about Megan Wants a Millionaire, which was an offshoot of Rock of Love, where Brett Michaels right, tries to I find love. Rock of Love. It was huge. Which was, right. And Rock of Love was, of course, an offshoot of Flavor of Love. In which Flavor Flav tries to find love. So first you start with Flavor of Love. Flavor Flav was the original? Was the original. Do you remember New York? Of course I remember I mean, New York. hello, she's <laughs> fabulous. And she had her own show. Yes. But then Megan, they tried to basically do the parallel show to the New York show with Megan from Rock of Love. They had to pull it halfway through the season when one of the contestants in really real life allegedly killed his partner. I say allegedly because he killed himself before he ever had to go to trial for it. I'm assuming he killed himself because he freaked out that people realized it. It sounds like, right? Was it within the same year? I think it was shorter for that than that. I think there was like a manhunt and then they found him. It could be wrong here, but I think that that is what happened. I think it was pretty clear. So they did not air? They aired half of it and then they cut it. You'll never see the other half. Very few human beings probably were watching the first half, but I was among those human beings. (laughs) And then I was thinking about that and then Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, where one of the women's husbands killed himself. But they did air. They aired the whole season. They kind of recut it to make that one of the stories. And on the reunion special, you had Lisa Vanderpump, who said, you know, I don't know if we should have done this season. And I thought about it. I thought, you know, she makes a fine point. But I realized that I had been watching it, hadn't been really particularly emotionally invested in this real tragedy. I had been watching it with my laptop open, working on my stuff, answering my email. And I thought, what does that mean about me? That's where I got to a place where I thought, well, in cold towns are these walled cities where inside vampirism as a spreading infection has broken out. And so they're trying to keep them contained. And one of the ways that people inside make money is send out live feeds. And so people watch either the unedited live feeds or the more the edited feeds that are on television. And I thought, would people watch a show about vampires in which occasionally somebody got killed and eaten? You know, and I thought, of course they would. I would. Come on. It's clearly my ideal show. That was part of the inspiration of that book. See, it really pays off to watch reality shows. The moral of the story is that just look at the stuff you love and think about and know stuff about. Mm. You can pull all of this stuff if you really look at the stuff you like and then look at it again and say, well, what's the little piece I really love the most? There's a story in that. If you don't already know this, because it's not an actual reality show, but it's very much inspired by reality shows. And I think it was inspired by 
an actual producer of Bachelor or Bachelorette or something. Oh, Unreal? Yes, on Lifetime. Oh my God. The first season of Unreal is my favorite. It's so freaking good. Have you seen season two? It's a little weird. It gets a little weird. Season one was my favorite as well. Now I see reality shows so different. What did we not see behind the scenes? You know, you sort of know how constructed it is. It is really great to see a show take advantage of how constructed it is. Yes. Yeah, that first season is just, there's a lot of just really wonderful things there. And I really wanted the second season to work. I was really excited about it. Yes. I'm, you know, really sorry for the ways in which it didn't work. (laughs) Are you going to watch season three? (sighs) Are you going to watch season three? I have to because one of my really good friends is cast in season three. Great. I will watch it for your friend. Please watch for my girlfriend. Absolutely. She's a sweetheart. She's super blonde. She's gorgeous. Her real name is Natalie Hall. She actually bought my mic. She believed in me with this vision for the podcast. She bought me my mic so that I have no excuse to not do it. I'm still using the mic till this day. She's a sweetheart. She's playing... I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to be saying too much about this, but she's playing a character who's kind of on the free, exposed side. All right. Now, segueing back to you, darling, what are you most excited about right now? I know you have The Cruel Prince, which is coming out in January 2018. You recently had The Silver Mask, which is part of your Magisterium series, come out in October. Cassie and I, we finished writing the last book in the Magisterium series, which is The Golden Tower. And so I'm really excited because there's five books. We finally got it all together. I'm really excited for Cruel Prince to come out because it's new and because it's been done for a while. It's the beginning of a series. I haven't done a fairy series that I knew was a fairy series in a long time. (laughs) You crank out stories like nobody's business. (laughs) It's funny. I feel like it's so slow. I feel like I go so slowly. I'm not a rubbing it in. I've heard people on your podcast talk about (laughs) writing tens of thousands of words in a day. If I can write a thousand words in a day, it's a good day. If I can write one word a day, it'd be a great day. (laughs) You're doing fabulously. I wanted to talk about a thing that I thought that you and your readers might like, which is, I don't know if anyone's seen it, it's called pacemaker.press. It breaks down your word count for you. I've become really obsessed with it because I do plod my way through books. I really need to know how many days it's going to take me to get something done. I really recommend it. And in fact, I think that you might like it because you can put in any end time you want, any end date you want. You can take off weekends. You can take off pieces and it'll automatically tell you how many words you need. But you also can change the way it goes. It doesn't have to average it. It can be a climb. This has worked for friends of mine who are having trouble getting into a book where you can do it as a steady climb or you can do it as moving toward a big middle where you're doing a heavy work down in the middle. And so for you, if say your goal was 33 words a day, could set it to something like that. It's so funny when you said 33 words, suddenly I felt freedom and excited to want to jump back into writing because 33 wasn't as scary. You can set it so it goes up and you could set it for a year. You could set it for two years. You could set it for any amount of time. You could set it for two days a week. You could set it for weekends only. One thing that's nice, because I used to do that by hand, because how else would you do it, right? Yeah. And every time I missed a day, I would feel, well, I just don't know now. But here you can just knock it off and it'll just recalibrate. Even playing with it, it might be a way for a lot of different people in a lot of different places to think about how they want to write or how they're able to write and how and what the time frame will be when they get something done. 
Thank you for that. That is really a fantastic positive reinforcement. There's some apps where I feel so shitty. I'm like, and so guilty. So I'm like, uh, but I like what you said that ends up recalibrating. It reminds me of these like workout apps. Like there's a Nike app that one of my friends installed because she's been trying to really encourage me to be healthier because I had some issues before seeing the doctors all the time. And she's like, you know, you need to start like walking <laughs> at least. I'm like, okay. So she installed the Nike app in my phone. She also mm-hmm. got me a Fitbit. I'm like, okay, I get the hint. So then I'm just like looking <laughs> at it, but I was so encouraged by something like a Fitbit because it made me want to beat my previous numbers. I get really competitive with board games. I'm not even kidding. And I love playing with competitive people. So if you are competitive, you are coming over and we're going to play Settlers of Catan. (laughs) Tell me you know Settlers. I know it, but I've never played it. (gasps) Excuse me. Why not? I don't don't know. I don't know. (gasps) Oh, blasphemous. I don't care. You're coming over to San Diego. All right. And I'm going to teach you how to trade sheep for brick and brick for ore. This really does seem like it would be a thing I would enjoy. (laughs) Done and done. I'm looking for more competitive people. I'm not sure if I have enough competitive spirit, but I guess I better get some. (laughs) You better get some. But yes, thank you for mentioning the pacemaker.press. A lot of listeners, I think it would help them too. All these resources and tools. Like I always love learning about it. When I first learned about Scrivener, I flipped shit. I know. I love Scrivener. I still don't understand so many things about it. Like I can only do like five things on Scrivener. They have a million things, but guess what? The one, two or three things that I actually know about is enough. So I'm like, I can't even imagine what it's like to know everything. Did you know that they have a note card section? Because I didn't realize that till about a few months into it. I knew it, but I never used them. I'm actually trying it for the first time. I'm writing the third book in the Cruel Prince series. Wait, you're up to the third? I know. I'm really ahead. For, this is like the most ahead I've ever been. I just finished Wicked King. And so I'm writing a book called Queen of Nothing. I'm trying the note cards for the first time as note cards. I'm trying to do it by scene. I'm trying a totally different way of writing for this book. How are you digging it so far? So far, so good. I like to outline, but then I don't actually follow my own outline. When I was co-writing with Cassie on Magisterium, she would just be like, get back to the outline outline mostly i would but sometimes i'd be like but i have an idea i'm always veering off and i'm hoping that thinking of it in scenes will help and then i'm trying to fast draft on like another device like one of those alpha smart things is that the typewriter it looks like a typewriter or something yeah i have a free write that a friend gave me yeah i'm trying to fast draft on it is alpha smart also that typewriter or is that a different thing? It does the same thing. Gotcha. When you say fast draft, because this is the first time I've ever heard fast draft, is that almost what they do in high school, those creative writing classes where they're like free writing? Kind of. Not in the same way where, where you can't stop and you just have to type the same thing. Yeah. Rather, because all of these devices, you can't really look back. And I mean, all I like to do is look back. All I like to do is mess with a sentence <laughs> for half Me too. Hour. That's me. It's the worst. And I just need to get some crap down. And I'm terrible. I won't stop. I won't stop messing with things because I can't go back on these. I have to fast draft out the scene. And so I'm giving it a try. I did it for some of the last book I did. And it was both useful and somewhat painful. (laughs) I have a very slow and often annoying process by which I go back a lot And I need to stop myself. And so maybe this will help. Maybe I can try that too. I'm so OCD and very overly meticulous Mm -hmm. to the point where it hurts Mm -hmm. me with everything. And it takes me longer and and I delay myself with like production and stuff. It's so ridiculous. Thousand percent that is me. I sit there and I'm like, well, I wonder what they say. (laughs) No, not that. No, not that. Till I could get it the way I want. Phrase the way I want. I won't go on. These alpha smarts, they're discontinued. 
but you can get them on eBay or Amazon for 40 bucks. A lot of people swear by them. I've been trying. It is really good if you are a meticulous writer because then your critical mind is so engaged. Anything you can do to get out from your own critical eye is going to help you. You love editing, don't you? Yes. Yes. I hate drafting, but I love editing. Yes! I will edit Moonlin's text messages. It's so, like, I, oh God, I sound crazy. I shouldn't have said that. Oh dear. We are as one here. I can't believe I just admitted that. But not all. I just want to clarify, not all, but some things where it's businessy or emails that are businessy, even just one word off or like her Instagram, I'm like, I love you, babe. A thousand percent I edit my husband's stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I love you very much. I just want to preface this before I go just into let this. Me just, but... Yeah, I'm just going to, you know, just let me tweak it a little bit. Just give me it for just a second. Hand you it know, over. You an extra space between your last letter and your comma. I love that you do the same thing. Done. I'm giving you an air hug right now. I'm like <laughs> hugging the mic. Holly, you are the freaking best. Seriously. Um, Thank you for sharing those tools too. That's really helpful to know. Thought I came across AlphaSmart and maybe it wasn't, but I, it was something that I think was funded by Kickstarter. If AlphaSmart's not funded by Kickstarter, then it might uh, not be right. the one. No, that's a free write. It's like that super fancy kind of hipster machine. Okay, so that's free write. I have been using one. There's things I like about it. A lot of ways the AlphaSmart, it's lighter, more portable. There's a lot of things that are better about the Alpha Smart. There's also a lot of things I like about the free rate, which has a bigger space to look at. I think I can only be allowed one line. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. The Alpha Smart is three or four <laughs> lines. It really is good, though, because if you are somebody who has trouble getting that first draft down, yes. and I am that person, anything that can trick us to getting something on the page is going to be better for the free write, mm-hmm. they should not even have a delete button. Like, <sighs> well, it's really hard. On the free write, you can't tab up. Oh, interesting. Okay, so maybe that's good enough. It's too annoying to do it. I'm going to try that. And I wonder maybe if I can find the Alpha Smart as well on maybe eBay. You can. There's tons of them. Okay. They're between 20 odd and 40 bucks. They run off batteries. This is so random. But I think talking about $20, $40, because I know it's something where a lot of writers most of the time do struggle with jobs too and make income and wanting to make more time for their writing. When you mentioned you met Tony through that gaming magazine, was that what you were doing to help support you during that time? I was actually at that time a production editor on medical journals. I would size photos and send stuff out to copy editing and to the editors for the Journal of Hand Surgery and the Journal of Pain. And then in my free time, I was doing this other thing, theoretically writing my book. Did you find this job through friends recommendation or was it through Craigslist? Let's see, back then, probably through the paper. I submitted a paper resume. Oh my God, that's awesome. Do you mind if I can squeeze in some listener questions? They're really Oh, no, sure, of course. Okay, thank you so much. But before I go in that, Jessica Cooper, her question is, what are the three books you'd take on a desert island to read for the rest of your island dwelling life? This is a trick question. A guide to surviving on a desert island. A step-by-step tutorial how to make a ship out of things you might find on a desert island. And then the works of Anthony Trollope, because he wrote a lot of books, and I've never read any of them, but I hear they're good. (laughs) I think that maybe I should start with that. That is a good one. The second question is from Catherine Locke. She recently came out with The Girl with the Red Balloon, and she loves your work. She said, I love Holly's books so much. I am so interested in how she constructs 
setting and atmosphere in her books, does that flow out naturally or is that something that comes together over many revision passes? Nothing comes together naturally in a book, really, right? I think a lot about images. I often start with a character and then like a feeling and a specific image that evokes that feeling. Mm-hmm. A lot of times I feel that feeling and that image, you know, when you go get your hair cut and somebody pulls that first piece of hair you know, the stylist pulls that piece of hair and they measure all of the rest of the cuts against it. Like for me, it's that image, that feeling that that image evokes. And so it's really important to me that I get that stuff right, because that's what I'm writing to produce is those feelings rather than the specific story. That is awesome. Off of that, Vanessa Andrew, she says, love Holly And she loved Catherine's question. And she said she's going to piggyback off of Catherine's question. She says that you are so good at melding together our world with something fantastical and fresh, like the coldest girl in Cold Town. It's funny because we were just talking about reality shows and how that inspired. And then she continues to ask, how does Holly combine what is current and fantasy elements create something new? Well, I think that one of the things that I really love about contemporary fantasy is that juxtaposition and that feeling that just around the corner, quite out of sight, that there Mm -hmm. could be something fantastical and that the world might be bigger and weirder than we suppose. And so I think that that's the pleasure of it. One time I was reading with a bunch of contemporary writers, and I realized that they didn't have as much description. We know what a locker looks like. And I was kind of trying to think about like, well, why do I have so much description? I realized that one of the things you need to do when you're writing about the fantastical is make sure that the realistic stuff is described at the same level of reality. Otherwise, the reality, it doesn't feel like you're in the same space, like you need to make sure that both things feel equally described. The more real that you can make the real world, the more real the fantasy is going to feel. Allison Elaine Green said, Holly is one of my favorite authors. She's simply incredible. She says, I'd be interested to know what kind of research she did for her fae books, like The Darkest Part of the Forest and Type. She said, I've got a fairy story idea brewing in the back of my mind. And if you have any books or websites that you use for research and that you could share, that would be super cool. And maybe what drew you to fae in general? There's a couple of things I super love about fairy folklore. So many other supernatural creatures, fairies are not human and never were human. Unlike werewolves who were once human, fairies have an entire different moral system they're alien beings. And Mm -hmm. that's really interesting. And the other thing is that they're an ecosystem, right? Mm -hmm. There's all different kinds of fairies. There's nixies and pixies and sprites and trolls and your gentry fairies. And that makes for a really interesting world because there is so much folklore. There's a lot to draw on. And I love all their weird rules. They're really specific, strange rules. If I were to recommend a couple of things, W.Y. Evans Wentz's Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries is a really great resource. Dorit McManus's The Middle Kingdom, anything by Catherine Briggs. You can find them online for free and some of them are reprinted and you can find them pretty easily. Thank you so much for that. I'm sure that's going to really make Allison very, very happy. Off of that, something similar. Anel Haynes wrote, Yay! Holly's one of my automatic buy authors. Whatever she writes, I buy it. That's a huge compliment. And then she put a lot of heart emojis. She says she's currently writing fantasy, but she's finding that creating a magic system that is new and unique quite difficult to do because she feels like everything has been done before. Would you by any chance have any advice on original world building? That's a big question, right? We worry a lot about originality. And I think what we need to worry about 
more than originality is finding the stuff we love Mm -hmm. and finding the way into it that is specific to us. When Cassie and I sat down to write the Magisterium books, we were like, will there never be any more wizard school books? Are we done with that whole genre after Harry Potter? Mm -hmm. Is there room for more wizard school books? And in writing them, we decided that we thought that there was still room for this genre to have books that continue on. Are there room for vampire books? There are so many Mm-hmm. And so many that have been huge successes, which have been generationally defining books. I read the Anne Rice books when I was a kid. Oh, me too. I love them. Oh, I love those books so much. Let's My start. Oh, research sexy. paper was on vampire. Yes. I have to say, though, I truly loved Lewis. I, that was my, he was <gasps> my, you know. I was I like, know. Lestat can bite me anytime. <laughs> <laughs> I love that I, I love Lewis. I love, <laughs> I did. Um, I mean, I love them both, but. Lewis was my first love. Um, oh, that's so sweet. I feel like Lestat might be my first love, but okay. <laughs> At least we're not fighting over the same guy. So that's good. You know, when there are so many big, big you know, genre defining books, is there room for another? There's always room for another one. There's always room for the one that reinvents the genre. There's always room for the thing. And the thing that makes it fresh is the specificity. It's really finding the thing that speaks to you about it and really finding your take on it. And so I think it's less about trying to say, how am I going to find this thing that's totally new? And rather, like, how am I going to find this piece of it that nobody has explored before that's really interesting to me? Emily Donaldson said, I am so stoked. I love Holly's books, and I'm very excited for The Cruel Prince. I'd be curious to hear how she crafts her narrative voice based on the age groups she's writing for. I've noticed she writes older YA and more middle grades, and has a unique and age-appropriate narrative voice across the board. Wow, what a great compliment. Yes, I was like, well, thank you. (laughs) Whatever age I'm writing about, I try and think about what I was like at that age and what I really cared about, what I was really doing, especially when we're writing about teenagers. It's when we're older to look at kids and say, oh, well, I'm sure that they're doing this. Yes, yes. But what were you doing at that age? What kind of trouble were you really getting Mm -hmm. into? And what was the stuff that was really important to you? So I try and think about what my life was like, what the concerns actually were for me at that time. Yeah. And then I try and think about, okay, and how long ago was that? And what is different about now? Because I don't want to write a book that feels completely out of step. I try and find that balance. But I think that in terms of the voice, it really is about just thinking about what you really cared about. So good, yet again. Now, Yasmin Fisher said, I love Holly Black. Hers are some of the only books I thoroughly enjoy as audiobooks because her writing flows so naturally with the atmosphere in her stories. So kind. Girl, you are really popular with our community. They love you. Also, you are one of the most requested authors for the show. Sometimes I check in with a group. I ask, who would you love to hear on the show? And we'll do our best. And you probably had one of the highest requests from our entire community. Excellent. Love you. See, so you're like, yes. <laughs> okay, so Yasmin's question is, unlike other authors, she doesn't branch out into a million widely different genres, which I truly admire her for. How does she manage not to repeat the same story over and over, but always manages to come up with something fantastically new? When you're writing with the same folklore base, like when I'm coming back to fairy and, you know, when I was sat down to write Darkest Part of the Forest, I thought, well, what in the world do I love in fairy that I haven't already used? (laughs) And so there definitely was some of that. Trying to think of different interpersonal dynamics is probably the biggest thing that I try to do to keep my books from feeling like I'm telling the same story. You know, I try to figure out what is a interesting dynamic in terms of the different people in this book 
that I haven't played with before and structural stuff that I want to do, structural stuff that I've liked and would like to try. I come to each book with some puzzles that I think I want to work out in the book with some specific inspirations that I had. Sometimes I've had some fairy tales that I've thought, oh, I'd like to take some of this. When I was sitting down to do Curse Workers, I thought there's a fairy tale called The White Cat that I was really inspired by. And then also there was true crime novel, Son of a Grifter that I was really inspired by. And I was like, I'm sure these two things can go together. And my friends were like, why? Why do you do these things? (laughs) Starting out with stuff I love and would like to play with that's often kind of different from each other is where I start. And then sort of try to puzzle together something. I'm not sure actually that makes any sense, but that is my process. And it often in the beginning does not make an enormous amount of sense. Even though you might not think it sounds correct, I'm sure that Yasmin's going to totally understand what you're saying. I'm going to inject one of the comments, not a question, from Kristen Foster. When I mentioned, do you guys have any questions for Holly Black coming up? She wrote in all caps, incoherent screaming. So I just had to share that with you. I thought it was the cutest thing. Other people jumped in who had questions too, but I realized we already naturally covered it in our conversation. Know that there's so many more listeners as well who love you and appreciate you. And I appreciate you too so much. One final question I love asking as many guests as possible is do you have any querying tips for our listeners who are in the query trenches right now? I have managed to avoid querying for a long time. I don't know that I'm any good at this but I think that seen from the other side people get queries and get submissions I will say that I think a lot of times we think about them as standing out I think what we really want from queries most of all right yeah. is it says I am able to follow directions and I am solid and I am making sense here's a description of my book and often they come with samples I know that in some cases they don't and that, that it's about really getting that gleaming beautiful thing when you walk up to someone and you talk to them about the weather reason you're talking to somebody about the weather is if you can't handle talking about the weather I don't want to talk to you about anything else <laughs> oh, right? that's a good point yes <laughs> right yes and a lot of the query letter is can you handle this right there's a lot of people who send some weird query letters <laughs> And you're not competing with them, that you're already, just by the virtue of sending a relative normal query letter, you are already at the next level. I think that focusing on reader pleasure, I think, is a huge part of what makes a summary stand out, what makes a pitch stand out. If someone asks me, what is your one piece of writing advice? I always say, write for your reader self and not for your writer self. We try and impress ourselves as writers, right? We try and do the things told writers to do, but Leave all of that aside. What is the thing that you as a reader would care about? What would you react to? That's the stuff that goes in there. That's so good. Holly, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks Thank so you for having me. After listening to so many episodes, I was, I was I'm so excited about this. You have no idea. I'm so, so thankful you came on the show. And I really had such an incredible conversation with you. And that wraps up our episode with the one and only Holly Black. Holly, I absolutely loved having you on the show. Thank you so much for such a heartwarming conversation. I seriously had so much fun with you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Holly on Twitter at Holly Black. For the books and resources mentioned in her episode, head over to 88 com slash podcast slash Holly dash Black. 
If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group, by the way, if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have an amazing and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.